Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode, we're breaking from the norm to bring you an exclusive panel discussion featuring the directing team of the FX Network series, The Americans, presented by the DGA's Eastern Region Special Projects Committee. Created by former CIA agent turned author, Joe Weisberg, The Americans tells the riveting story of Philip and Elizabeth Jennings, two deep cover KGB agents in an arranged marriage who masquerade as a typical American couple in Reagan era, Washington, DC. Last month, Actor-directors Noah Emmerich and Matthew Reese, director-executive producer Christopher Long, UPM and executive producer Mary Ray Thulis, UPM and co-producer Tyson Bidner, and First AD Charlie Foster all gathered at the DGA Theater in New York to discuss the behind-the-scenes details of making The Americans with moderator David McCoy Barrett. During the discussion, the group covered a variety of topics, including working with the Jays, aka showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, the challenges of budgeting a period spy series shooting New York for Washington, D.C., and how Reese and Emmerich made the transition from acting to directing. Thank you and good evening. To all of you DGA members and guests, welcome. Uh, I'm David Barrett, your host and moderator for this evening. What a great opportunity tonight will be to explore all aspects, responsibilities, and contributions of a DGA team on an Emmy-winning show. I'd like to begin where it all began for you all. So I will um, ask you, uh, where, when did you know you wanted to be in the business? Uh, what was your first job? And what job prepared you best for the Americans? Chris, I'll start with you. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I want to say thank you so much, David, for. Uh, for hosting tonight for us. Uh, I've known, uh, that's known David for a long time. We've been friends for a very long time. And I have a big respect for your work too. Thank so, you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think, well, when did I first know I wanted to be in the business? I think when I was a, a wee little lad in rainy old England, uh, I would come home and uh, my form of escapism was I would put the TV on and chips would be on the TV. <laughs> and I would look at chips and I would go, oh my God, look at that, the blue skies and the stunts and the palm trees and stuff like that. I think this is something I want to do and never dreamed that I'd actually be out here uh, in the United States doing it. So that's really was the sort of the essence and the root of it. Um, I actually started off in the music business as a sound guy and then, uh, and then went into editing and post-production and that sort of was then producing, then directing. So that was my route. It's a well-traveled route. A lot of post-producers have made it um, as directors and director-producers. It's an unbelievably great background being in the editing room. And, uh, I, oh yeah, and, and Russia. Okay, well, I was always fascinated by Russia. I studied uh, uh, Russia when I was a kid in school, all Bolshevik, Menshevik revolution, and stuff like that. And then in uh, 1984, I actually went to Moscow. I was, uh, uh, I was actually dating a girl who was a travel agent, and she, she would get like these uh, odd uh, excursions to try and promote certain things. And so I actually went, and it was the height of, uh, I, was quite, I was a very young man, 1984. Uh, and it was called Height of the Height of the Cold War, and it was an unbelievable eye opener to me. 
Um, and I went back to Moscow last year. Uh, and uh, to, and it, believe me, it's changed enormously. Um, and that's really when the, when the guys were doing this show, the Americans, and I, before I was even involved with the show, uh, I, I loved it because I always just had this unbelievable fascination for the USSR. Great. Thank you. Um, yes, I think I, I feel like I didn't have much of a choice um, <laughs> about uh, joining um, the business called Show because our, our school in, in Cardiff in Wales in the UK was next door to the BBC, to BBC Wales. Um, and back in the good old days when things weren't as sort of strict or stringent they are now, what tended to happen was like you'd be in a class and someone would come in looking quite glamorous, probably smoking, and go, Right, we need three kids, two are minor's sons, uh, maybe one daughter, and like a street urchin. And they'd sort of go, right, Jones, Reese, Davis, Evans, you go. And then we would sort of, we'd sort of go out into the BBC, we'd rehearse, and then, you know, you get picked or not. And then, so at the age of 12, I did this, family, this sort of BBC family drama about coal mining when my father died. And they sort of go, can you cry? And you go, well, well yes, but only, you know, under certain situations so they can you know quick jab in the eyes and you're off um and that was sort of it we were sort of every year there'd be all these little bbc productions where they'd come in you're in the middle of gym and you get hiked out and and off you go and and it sort of went from there really and then a friend of mine at 18 went i'm gonna drive a drama school um and you go what, what do it for a living don't be so ridiculous it's a hobby um but i i followed him uh, to london and followed suit and I, I, you know, I was a product of, you know, the, uh, the Cold War in the 80s and how, how terrified we were all were of um, imminent nuclear war and how we did the drills where you put your hands over your eyes in case of flying glass. You go, I think there's, there's probably bigger things going on than flying glass if in the event of nuclear war. So, uh, you know, the, it was an incredibly resonant um, job for me, the Americans. Um, and now Noah Emmerich speaks about how he got his start in the film industry. I didn't, I didn't really have a singular moment of realizing I wanted to be in show business. I'm still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> uh, it was a really a weird, creep, circuitous journey for me. Uh, but my first experience really was, I was in an acapella singing group in college and university. I was studying to go to law school, but I was a bass voice in the, in the commencement show of the of the college, and my friend was directing. I had always had a lot of friends who were directors, actors. I was a musician as a child. My mother is a concert pianist, so I grew up in the music world. So uh, there we go, I was, I was singing uh, in this acapella group, and my friend was directing and said, would you, I need you to be in the chorus of this musical, Anything Goes. And I thought he was bonkers, I mean, I was terrified to go on stage without an instrument. I, I, I had terrible stage fright, but I had a crush on a girl in the show. <laughs> that was my soft spot. So I ended up doing this musical uh, my senior year of college. And it awakened something in me for the first time. I thought, I think I might have always wanted to do this. I had a great time. I was terrible. And I had three lines that I forgot virtually every night, the three-night run. <laughs> I got them wrong every night. I was really uh, stage fright, uh, struck with stage fright. Uh, but it was the first thing that I had that I think I may want to do this more. And everyone around me thought I was having a nervous breakdown. I was a senior in college going to law school and decided I wanted to be an actor in musicals, even though I was terrible at it. Uh, uh, 
So that was the beginning. And then I continued on and made different things, and, but always sort of with the itch of trying acting again. And I started, I studied acting for a few years in New York. I did Meisner technique uh, and thought, well, if I really am interested in this, I better, better see if I can have any talent and pursue it seriously. So I studied and I started to audition and continued on doing other jobs as well, but then finally acting just pulled me in. Uh, that's, was there a second part? Yeah. I forgot the second part. I got so involved with my own story. <laughs> Russia. Uh, Russia. Yeah. Oh yeah, the Americans. Uh, <laughs> I was very scared of Russia as a child. I grew up in the 80s in the Cold War and I was very, I was, I was part of an organization that I co-founded called uh, Future Generations, which was an anti-nuclear, a nuclear disarmament organization here in New York. I grew up in New York, and we had lots of rallies and marches. It was all kids, 18 and under. Uh, and I, I, was, I did, got involved in that because I really was terrified. I remember having a visceral fear of, of nuclear war. So uh, revisiting that time frame as an adult with an education and perspective and being alive, having made it through it, was a really fascinating opportunity to, to, to revisit that and relive it in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. Um, and now, Tyson Bidner speaks about how he got into the movie business. I, um, I, I grew up in Canada, and uh, I knew I wanted to come to New York and uh, work in the business in some capacity, more behind the scenes. So uh, when I was in college, I went to business school at NYU, I saw there was a advertisement to work at NBC and I thought, wow, this is a good company, good foray to get in. And I knew nothing about how to get into the business at all. So I did the internship and it was for a, in the location department of a TV show called The Cosby Mysteries. And uh, it was my first day there, and I'm, you know, meeting everyone. And one of the producers said, "Well, you know, just make sure to get your paperwork in to, to be a, uh, to get the college credit." And I said, "Well, I actually can't get college credit for this." And she said, "Well, you can't work here." So after one day, I uh, was let go. <laughs> I went home, uh, back to the dorm, and I. I actually cried because I thought that was my one opportunity to get in the business and I just blew it. But while we were on my first day, the person that was in charge of me was driving around and the office was, I think, at Chelsea Piers and she went through a red light and got a ticket. So about three months later, she called me up and said, can you come and vouch for me that I didn't go through the red light? Which she did, but I vouched for her. And then she said, well, I have a friend on a CBS show that needs interns but you don't have to get college credit. So I was an intern in the location department of Central Park West. And from there, I met a lot of people and continued on in the, you know, being, I eventually became a location manager and sort of led up to being a UPM. Um, but that was kind of how I, I broke in. And um, as far as the Russia aspect of it all, my, my great-grandparents were all from Russia and they survived the pogroms and all of that. And um, I just remember I used to, um, my uncle videotaped my great-grandparents before they passed. And my great-grandmother, Sue, told this story about how she escaped the pogroms and came here. And she said, you know, I had a ticket for a, for a boat and the boat was delayed. So they wanted us to go on another boat. It was called the Titanic. Do you know what happened to the Titanic? <laughs> it sunk, uh, she said. But I wouldn't get on the boat because my ticket didn't say the Titanic. So I waited for my boat. So I thought that was an interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's all I got. <laughs> Charlie? Right, so when I graduated from college, I landed a job at a pretty fancy Wall Street firm, and after two or three years, I started to have doubts about that career. So when I was in college, I actually was also in an acapella group, like Noah, and, uh, and I had really enjoyed that sort of intense, creative, collaborative experience, if that's what we want to call acapella singing. So uh, I left Wall Street, puttered around for a year, finding myself, and then saw that a friend of mine had, uh, was a trainee on The Sopranos. Uh, when I was watching that, so it's back in 99, 2000. And uh, I was really impressed by that. So I applied to the program and got in, very lucky. And my first job was The Sopranos, and I got hooked. Uh, and I got really excited about being an AD. Uh, so I've been pursuing that track uh, ever since. I uh, eventually became a first AD, and after doing that for a few years, you know, got excited about production managing, and now I'm pursuing that aspect. But that's how I got in. Uh, the rush of it all, uh, I don't think I have a, the only organic connection I have to the Russian aspect of our story is that I've done some travels in, in uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Krasnodar uh, about 10 years ago with a friend of mine, and uh, was always struck by how uh, traveling through Russia, you, uh, it looks exactly like the United States, and yet the lettering's weird, and almost like a topsy-turvy version of the world that we live in. Uh, and so, you know, I think working on the Americans has been interesting, watching how we, you know, convey that world versus uh, what it was like here in the 80s. Well, when I started, I had no interest in going into the business. I grew up in Northern California, went to UC Berkeley, and, you know, misbehaved a little, I'm sure, um, <clears throat> and uh, went into theater, where I stayed for some time, got a graduate degree, directed, I directed anything with lots of people, Shakespeare and musical comedies primarily. And then in a really intuitively stupid move, I moved from California to New York and went from theater to film. So figure that out. But I did get into the DGA training program, which was the breakthrough for me, as it was for Charlie and for many of us, I think. Um, and I kind of worked my way up in the very traditional fashion, trainee to second AD to first AD to UPM to producer, went up the line, which used to be the most direct route now, there's lots of other ways, but uh, that's what I did. In terms of Russia, I, <clears throat> it's kind of an interesting story. When I was interviewing for this position at the Americans, I wasn't there the first season, so they were looking for a line producer the second season, and I interviewed with Joe and Joel, who I absolutely adore, and Joe, who's former CIA, saw that I had Peace Corps Afghanistan on my resume, and he asked me about it. And I said, oh yes, I was in the Peace Corps. I very, you know, right out of college and I liked it. He said, tell me about it. And I said, well, there were lots of Russians in our town and uh, we were not allowed to shop at the American commissary, but the Russians let us shop at their commissary and we bought, you know, cheese and vodka and all kinds of things like that. It was lovely. Well, <laughs> six years later, Joe is still convinced I'm a spy, but we've, <laughs> we have managed to work together happily, but that's my Russia of it all. <laughs> Great. Mary Ray, you were on Law & Order for 16 years. By dissecting your resume, there's no doubt in my mind you're honest and incredibly loyal and fair. You would not have uh, achieved what you have if you didn't possess those qualities. Uh, all those attributes are necessary to facilitate the showrunner's vision and bring a team of filmmakers together uh, where everyone's opinions matter. Um, this is a period show shot in New York for DC. Uh, I'm sure it doesn't have an endless budget like most of the most of your competition. How how do you 
break down these scripts? Where do you put your resources? What sequences do you put your resources into? <clears throat> well, I want to start by saying, um, and I'm not just shying it on because I'm on the stage with these guys, but this has been the most collaborative job I have ever had. The partnerships with Chris, uh, with Tyson, um, with Charlie, and the actors, it's been, it's been fantastic. It's a wonderful job. And uh, we, we kind of do a lot of groupthink, I think. I mean, theoretically, I guess my position is the person who says no. Um, I, and when I say I, I mean we, Tyson and I primarily, uh, don't say no very often. Um, what I will do to directors, particularly <coughs> coming in, new directors, they'll say, can I have a crane? Can I have a third camera today? Can I have this? Can I have that? And I will often say, yeah, there's one crane day in the budget. But what I will also say is make a list. And then when we get to the end of prep, we'll look at that list and we'll prioritize. We can't have everything you want, but we can have what you want most in many cases. So that's how I kind of do it. In terms of the practicality of it, the first thing I do is read the script for the story. I will not allow myself to think about anything in the script except what's happening next and what's going on. I, I just love the joy of the storytelling. And then I start going through, and probably I told this, David this in advance, the one thing that makes my heart skip not in a good way is when it says, they drive. <laughs> that's, I think, and we've gotten better at it. I wouldn't say we're brilliant at it, but we've gotten better. But that's the one thing that is the hardest to do, in my humble opinion, in New York, in a show set in Washington, uh, 30 years after the fact. I mean, the cars don't work, you can't get the cars, and there's cars everywhere that are the wrong era of cars, so driving shots are my least favorite. Of course, I don't have to do them. I just sort of hold my head in my hands when they're off doing them and say, I hope they get it, and they always have. And if, especially if it says, we drive, they drive daytime. That's the worst. We, they drive night, you've got a fighting chance. Okay, Charlie, you made the jump from AD to UPM this year. How was that experience? Uh, it was interesting. Uh, I'd been a first city on the show for uh, four seasons, and so for this fifth one, I moved to AUPM. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, looking back now after having completed the season, that I sort of felt along the way is that, so the change with the relationship between the crew and me. Uh, I hadn't realized uh, how the relationships I had when managing the set and pushing the set and organizing the set and logistics uh, had uh, uh, sort of different level of camaraderie than becoming a production manager and how now suddenly I was treated differently. And uh, my friends, who are still my friends, but they just <laughs> looked at me differently and they talked to me differently and, our, and the tenor of our conversations changed. Uh, you know, the camera guys want an additional loader one day, and so I would joke with them, as I had as an AD, uh, but it wasn't funny anymore. <laughs> it took on a sort of level of seriousness that I hadn't really anticipated. So, um, you know, fortunately, I've been able to hire those guys to my next show, so we didn't damage our relationships too bad, but that change was a, was a tricky one to navigate, and I'm, while I'm still feeling it out, it's, there's a different way of addressing people now as a UPM than uh, as an AD. That was probably the biggest takeaway. What did you miss about AD when you were UPMing? There's a thrill to execution that you do not get to enjoy as a production manager, I believe. Mm -hmm. Not as much. I mean, just sort of like the, the, the visceral feel of the material, of completing the shot, the day, the episode, 
being able to walk away uh, at rap on that last night and just feeling like I, this is done. And now I can reset and get ready for the next one. Uh, as a production manager, it's um, a slower burn. So it's not just completing that episode, it's all the things that go into the next one. And uh, because of the nature of our show, there are lots of sort of, let's say, longer term projects uh, that I was engaged in as an AUPM. And, uh, and so just sort of managing those like little elements, episode after episode, and, and just trying to keep track of these little things that as an AD, I would have just managed it for mine and maybe handed it off. Mm -hmm. uh, as a production manager, sort of a slower burn and, and you know, kind of was always a, more of a persistent wait. Mm -hmm. You AD'd for Noah, was that a thrill? <laughs> it was. What, you know what? We had this. Not a second. <laughs> no, I mean we had a, we had some awesome episodes together. Uh, I I did a, a couple of Noah's episodes and only just a few of uh, Matthew's scenes. That was uh, contractual on my behalf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then and Chris Chris Long and I were also in the hole together for a couple episodes. Uh, but working with Noah, uh, we had this one day where we had to. Uh, Martha was uh, being followed by various people, and so we had to orchestrate a lot of daylight-dependent work in the middle of December uh, that involved insides and outsides, and uh, it was too much for us to do in a day. But somehow, uh, through some clever scheduling and collaboration, we, we put together a small sort of B camera unit uh, and, uh, and had that operating on one side. Actually, Chris was directing that, and then Noah was doing the main work. Uh, and we made it work, and that was, for me, one of the biggest days that I had ever sort of cracked the code on in terms of scheduling and programming and, and, and executing, uh, and it was a thrill. It was awesome. At the end of that day, I felt really, really good about myself, and I think Noah was really excited that we'd accomplished what we had, and Mary Ray was in a tone meeting that day, and her, she left the volume on on her phone, so every time we got a shot, it would ding, and so she kept on hearing ding, 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 ding as each unit handed in their, uh, handed in their shot. So to me, as an AD, I mean, it's kind of geeky, but that was exciting. Uh, Tyson, looking at your resume, you have uh, an incredible success in the locations department. Uh, you worked on big movies like Conspiracy Theory and, and Sex in the City as TV shows. Lo locations are logistics. So after these first reads uh, of an American's and the one-liner comes out, how, how do you help alleviate the fears of the, the, the logistics and uh, locations as concerned? As, yeah, as a production manager, I think, um, you know, or a line producer, I think a lot of um, our job is to create the freedom for the director to carry out the creative vision and make sure that we are have a path to success financially along the way. And I feel like my previous experience as a location manager gave me a lot of great tools by dealing with all the different departments, by dealing with uh, you know maintaining a budget. Um, and and so, for instance, on our show. Um, every season, and I've been there for four, the first couple episodes are really big. And you know, you have a pattern uh, of what each episode should cost. So you're getting into the hole at the beginning. So you have to sort of make a plan. And you know that your last, two ep your last episode or last two episodes are gonna be massive. So you have to sort of come up with a plan throughout the season of how to get back on track. 
And, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of long-term planning that uh, Mary Ray and I will do as far as, like, we'll keep our fingers crossed that maybe we could squeeze one of these. We do the show usually in eight days. Sometimes it's nine, sometimes it's ten, but our pattern is really eight days. So if we could get sometimes a seven twelve. Day, yeah, sometimes 12. <laughs> but if we could squeeze a seven-day episode out of it, um, then it really helps. Um, and, and we tandem, you know, like a lot of shows do, to try to, to try to get us to where we need to be and to keep on schedule. Um, but logistics, especially on a show like ours, which we are playing uh, New York for uh, Russia and Moscow, but never New York for New York. So it's always a very cre creative solutions, you know, to try to find Moscow around the corner from Washington, D.C., you know, is, is always like, you know, creatively, how do we do it? And logistically, how do we pull it off and still get everything done in a 12-hour day? So, you know, it's, it's a trick. I heard you also line produced one episode. How was that experience? Um, it was great. Um, you know, what I was lucky to be in a very protective environment. Um, you know, the show is, is a machine that's kind of running. Um, line producing and UPM is a very similar job in a lot of aspects. There's, you know, different shows that have different sort of uh, division of labor um, is split up. A lot of the times the, the division of labor is really above the line, so a UPM doesn't deal with a lot of the actors and things like that. So <clears throat> it was a nice different challenge, especially on our show, because we bring in a lot of the Russians that we have actually come in from Russia. So to get them here with the weather that we've been having and the, their schedules and everyone else's schedules, that was a, a different kind of uh, interplay than I'm used to. Um, but it was great. Mm -hmm. Noah, you have such a massive body of work, you've worked on feature films that literally get one setup, one to two setups a day. When you got the opportunity direct on this show, which is, uh, I, Chris has told me it's seven day episodes, now I'm hearing from Tyson, it's 10 days, so. Um, that was news to me too. Yeah, yeah me too, me too, I was like, what, eight days. I just had this illuminating realization, we're like, I'm the guy they squeeze the seven day episodes. Yeah. <laughs> so am I. That was, I was me. Like, oh, what, that eight day yeah. <laughs> so, so, Sorry guys. So it was seven this whole time. I know. <laughs> You're looking at them. So it's very easy to get used to that pace on a feature. Um, now you're on this show, and uh, you know it's, it's award-winning. There's an extreme amount of pressure to direct it. You read the script, and you're handed your one-liner. Can you give us what you were thinking in that moment? Holy shit. <laughs> this is impossible. I mean, basically, it's weird because I had, you know, I've obviously acted on a lot of episodes before I got handed one to direct. I mean, every episode produced. But I never saw it with a director's brain. I never looked at it. I saw how many days I had and how many scenes I had to do on a particular day. And it was never as bad for me as an actor as it was for any of our directors. Uh, and when you look at it through the, through the eyes of scheduling and makeability and, and how many hours there are in a day and how many... How many hours we, we go till we till we get cut off? It does seem unmakeable. I remember sitting with Charlie uh, and going, oh, "This just doesn't seem possible." <laughs> uh, and you know, I, I, Charlie was a great support, and you know, I had no experience, and he had a lot in terms of making a day. Uh, 
And he said, We're, we'll, we'll do it very calmly. I mean, the first AD that's calm and confident is such an asset. It's, it's, you can't, can't talk about it enough. But uh, it's, it's just, I mean, you really are making, I, you, you do more setups in a day than on a film set does in a, in, in a couple of weeks, yeah. uh, depending on the film. Of course, there's lots of films that have the same schedule. It was one of my apprehensions about coming to television. I had done mostly film. I'd done some guest spots, but never been on a series. And I really enjoyed the, the pace of film. I really, as an actor, I felt like I needed that time and space to get better than I was. Uh, and the process was very sort of what it is. It's meditative and sort of arduous and slow and many hours waiting, many hours waiting. And, and I was really sort of, I had my back up a little bit about how they expected it to be so fast. It's just as an actor. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, here I am six years later, and I, you know, you go do a movie or uh, go back to a film set, and it feels just so boring and slow. I can't <laughs> barely stand it. Like, what am I doing in my trailer for all these hours? What are they doing? What is this director doing? You could have shot two episodes of The Americans by now. Uh, so it was intimidating, and it was uh, nerve-wracking, and then it became addictive. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I feel like it really is, it gets you out of bed awake uh, mm -hmm. and excited and scared. And that's, a, I mean, those are good things, I think, to have, especially if you're not alone. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you've worked with so many talented directors. Who was the most influential for you um, as an actor? What was the, what was the most influential director? Uh, it's a tough question to answer in a way because everyone's had influences in different ways and some of the people I've worked with, I've worked with multiple times and very close with. But, it, but uh, I would have to, I, I go to Peter Weir is my first thought. Uh, partially because of the magic of that experience and the specialness of that script and everything about it and his magic is, is remarkable. Just a brilliant, artistic, authentic, gentle, kind, supportive, imaginative uh, man mm -hmm. uh, who, who you know, I loved working with so dearly and was such a wonderful experience and we became very close during that and uh, it just, he created the atmosphere, the Truman Show. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you take away from his process that you also... His pants. <laughs> <laughs> his process, you know, one of the things he does, which I, he's spoken about and people know about, I think, is that he, he, a lot of times he'll have the score in his head. He, he knows what he wants. He likes classical music a lot. He used a bunch in The Truman Show, as well as other films. And he'll oftentimes play it on set. It's such a shorthand. It's such a great way to communicate to everybody in the room. You hear this piece of music, you know the tone of the scene. You mm -hmm. know something about the scene that you didn't know before. Mm -hmm. Certainly as an actor, I think as well as any, any crew member, uh, it, it's a shorthand for saying, this is the mood, this is where we are. And it relaxes some of the actors. It's re certainly relaxed me. I think some, you, know, you never know how people are going to react. But it's a great shorthand way to communicate. Music is such a powerful uh, tool. Mm -hmm. in, in, in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was one of the things I, I always think about. I don't, I'm not one of those people that listens to music alone. Like some actors do, it gets them in the right mood. I, I think music is very powerful. I mentioned I was really interested, I was a musician as a child, but I don't do that alone. But as a, group, as a communal experience, I found it very uh, 
It's informing and frames the yeah, scene. Unifying, yeah. Yeah. Matthew, you are, you are one of the most precise actors I've witnessed in a very long time. I'm sure that quality does, does not escape your approach in, in preparation for directing. How did you balance prep uh, of your episodes while directing and then ultimately you're directing and then editing? How, how did you imagine, how did you fit it all in? Purely through the people who surround me. It, it, it truly was, you know, I was incredibly, incredibly lucky um, with this team. And I, I certainly, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, I don't think have attempted it um, had it not been these people. Um, and also I sort of had to do it because, you know, if you spend long enough with... Kerry Russell going, oh, God, this director doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> she goes, well, you do it then. Put your money where your mouth is, you do it. So, um, so yeah, you sort of, um, and like Noah said, there was uh, that sort of fear that zings you into kind of action and where you go, I don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. As soon as it says your name that you will direct this episode, you don't have that choice, therefore you just have to do it. Um, so, I, you know, I found the juggle was, di was difficult. Um, um, but I was so incredibly lucky with them, with this motley crew who, who kind of guided me through it. What was your, how long did you have to edit your episode? Um, I, I don't think I can give you a definitive answer because, the, again, they were very kind because I would sort of kind of, I'd be shooting and then they go, oh, you got, you know, the, I got an afternoon off, why don't you go and edit and then come back and then, so, um, and I think, you know, they were, they were very kind of giving me longer than, than usual, so I could, so I could, you know, turn in my first American, you know, cut and uh, and experience what that was. Um, uh, and the editors the same, you know, Amanda and Dan, they were so patient with me, mm -hmm. as I would have these wild ideas, and then they kind of talk me back to earth. Um, so I, I felt like I had a longer, a longer time than than usual. Mm -hmm. uh, the sort of glorious days went by where you realised them. I'd realised the magic. Then you go, oh right. This is where we make the show. <laughs> it's not on set. This is where it happens. When did you realize you wanted to direct? And when did you know you knew how to direct? Oh, God, I still don't know how to direct. Um, <laughs> it's getting away with it. Um, I, I was lucky. I did, I did a, t a TV series in, in Los Angeles called Brothers and Sisters on, on ABC. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, it was a big ensemble cast, and, and I had a, a kind of smaller role in it. Um, and the sort of the, the perverse side is, is the Americans, and I'll get to a reason why. But, uh, but on the, the show is kind of a slightly easier show to make. And what I in, enjoyed in watching the directors is kind of working out this big puzzle, this kind of how do I make this work, this big puzzle. And I, and I was interested in that, um, as well other elements within that. Um, so I, I asked, I started badgering them, saying, oh, can I direct Think in my wild ignorance um, and they said yes if if you shadow and you sit in on editing and we'll give you a ghost um, script and you can show us how you'd shoot that and, and and it was great it was the exact apprenticeship I sort of needed but it was with regards to as you know what well, no directing anything isn't easy but in comparison to the Americans it was a, an easier show to mm -hmm. direct mm -hmm. Chris, uh, what kind of style um, boundaries do you give the directors? What, what uh, is the visual style guide that you 
give the directors. I mean, like I said before, the show is incredibly consistent from director to director. Well, for sure, part of that is the prep. I mean, we're incredibly lucky that we get our script not weeks in advance, but months in advance. So that we are planning our season in long arcs. We see it as, you know, we see it as, a, we've made 10 episodes this year. We see it as one 10 episode movie. We don't see it as individual episodes. It's a very serialized show um, that's completely linked arm in arm. And so, um, you know, often, I mean, I would say that many times our directors come in and uh, there isn't that much guest cast to cast because it's already been cast. And there's not a lot of new sets to shoot because it's, you know, especially in this last season, because it's so serialized. I don't, I'm not one of those guys that ever says, here's the list of rules about shooting on our show. I'm not, that's not, that's not who I am. And for me, everything is born out of story. You'll hear me say it again and again. I don't like rules that are like, the camera always needs to be moving, or the camera needs to be doing this, or the camera needs to be doing that. So as I'm saying, the camera needs to be doing what it needs to be doing, depending on what that piece of story is. So. There are certain, you know, obviously we're an 80s spy show. As Tyson said, shooting not in the place it's supposed to be shooting. So there are certain, you know, guidelines of the show. Sure, we're a noir show, which that comes with all, every noir show you've probably ever seen before. That's single source key lights and not much fill and lots of shadows and um, shots that you feel are often observational and things like that. And that, and that is, that is, you know, a part of that noir thing. Um, the people that come and direct our show, especially this year, have directed it over and over, and they really, we only really go for team players. Mm -hmm. um, I, you'll hear me hear it, say it again and again, it's a team sport. We're making a 10 episode movie, the episodes are consistent. Um, and so, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we have any directors, well, maybe we have one actually, a couple of years ago, <laughs> whose name shall not be mentioned. Um, who went really off cop with something and, and, and was like, oh no, this is the way it's got to be done and whatever. I think if you come and play in the American sandpit, then you come and play having studied the show endlessly and knowing what type of show we make. And that, that, you know, and that show is a cross between, like I said, that spy, noir, and, and a family drama, helped by the fact that we shoot it in, the, in a certain part of Brooklyn that lends itself very much to that kind of look. Mm -hmm. How much Steadicam, do, do you guys carry Steadicam with you? Yeah, every day. What, what's your, what is the package that you carry yeah, on the show? Yeah, we have two cameras, uh, you know, obviously, and uh, B camera's a Steadicam guy too. Sometimes we use three cameras. We're not, we're, again, we're not much for like big setup counts either. We're, we're a show that has very light scripts. Like if you, sh like if you, if we get a 40 page script on the Americans, that's about, that's about right, isn't it guys? About 40 pages. Um, What's the scene count? Can be low, can be high. In the, in the finale, it was very, very high in the last, in the episode I just finished, but it can be 40 scenes too. Um, and, you know, that 40 pages will turn into 57 minutes. We also are, are so lucky that we don't have a time limit. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to be a minimum rough of about 44 minutes, but, you know, we just locked an episode at 57 minutes. So effects, so we're not, I, one of the most frustrating things I found about working in network television was hitting that time. It mm -hmm. drove me absolutely crazy that some episodes you would get that you were just so happy with at, at 52 minutes, you were there trying to take six minutes out, you know, where it just did not serve as a story and it's only ever, you know, the production value, the beats and the stuff that's, you know, 
all the good stuff that's in between the words that gets cut. Right? It's never the plot, obviously, because it can't be. Um, so we're very lucky there. Um, yeah. How was the experience shooting in Russia, and how did the studio respond to the first, the initial idea of shooting over there? Uh, they were really supportive of it. I mean, like a, a, again, I know it sounds like it's like an untruth that we talk about the love fest that is sitting up here. It is a love fest, and also our network and studio are incredibly supportive. But it was really we we poked around with the idea when I first got here in season four. And the storylines just didn't go there. That's the other thing about the show. The show sort of morphed over its six seasons. It started off very much as a, um, Gavin O'Connor directed the pilot beautifully and he directed it very much. It, uh, it was a lot glitzier. There's a lot more action in it. And it was sort of like the first season was more case of the week type. Mm -hmm. And then it really turned into, a, into, you know, into that spy drama and a family drama and, and losing the case of the week. By having a case of the week type thing, there was no room to develop them as much uh, of the family and character material that the Jays wanted to do. So we'd always poked about thinking about going to Russia, and then in season five, one of the storylines really split and, and went to Russia, and that was uh, Costa Ronan's character, Oleg. Um, and he just felt right that we'd go in there and shoot some of it. So uh, I sort of brought it up to the Jays, and they were like, yeah, we're way up for it. Um, and uh, they went to Fox 21 in effects, and, and uh, it, it really didn't cost that much money to go there. It was because it's so cheap to shoot there. Um, and we went with a very small crew. I just went with Costa, and only me, Costa, and one of our post PAs who spoke Russian. Um, I took just the three of us, and I only took him because I wanted to know what people were talking about me, <laughs> saying about me uh, in the van. And uh, <laughs> that's the reason I took him. Um, it was an incredible experience going there. It really was an amazingly emotional place to go. But we went because it was right for the story. We never tried to jam in stuff that's not right for our story. Everything, again, I go back to we have our scripts for months and months. We have endless meetings, don't we, guys? Endless meetings, endless discussions about everything. Nothing's left to chance. Uh, lots of development, lots of story development, lots of production development, lots of, you know, lots of stuff like that. So... And, that, and that's the other gift I'm really going to miss is, you know, getting our scripts two months in advance. Mm -hmm. And so that two, two months, you, are you here in New York with the team, uh, Mary Ray, and how does that process work? As you know, on, on network TV, we're getting our scripts the night before we, we start to prep. Yeah, I mean, we, we get them before we, you know, as we wrapped out one season, we get the, really a month later, we get the first two scripts from the next season and eight outlines. And then by the time we showed up for the first day of prep of a new season, which would be six to seven weeks out before we started shooting again, we'd have five or six scripts. And then we get in and we start breaking them down, and, you know, the, not only from a story and character point of view, uh, but the minutiae of the nuts and bolts of making the thing. And how you say it, how to keep it consistent, how to keep it, you know, one cohesive piece. Well, there's no doubt this DGA team up here, uh, the Americans, is a great story for our business. Uh, an incredibly supportive group of artists coming together for a common goal. Um, I want to thank you for your insight into your partnership and culture you have created on this show. Uh, the characteristics and ethics uh, of, the of the individuals on this team are a display uh, and has given us a roadmap into what all crew members should aspire to be. Uh, you're an anomaly, 
Uh, your work and your re working relationship have inspired every one of us tonight. So thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. We hope you enjoyed listening to this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the panel on our website at dga.org slash events. Past episodes of The Director's Cut are available wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.